All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in Galatians 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Galatians 4. Um, remember this Saturday is our Christmas Eve service, candlelight, that'll be at 7 o'clock. Join us for that if you can. And then uh, Sunday morning we'll just have one service at 11 a.m., and uh, that'll be it. Now next Wednesday there'll be no service here. Uh, we're going to take that week off, and then of course Saturday night is our, that next Saturday night is New Year's Eve party. And then that New Year's Day is still an 11 a.m. service only. So kind of a different holiday schedule here as we work through it. Um, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word this, this evening. Um, we thank you that we're able to spend time together during this. It's a busy season. Um, there's a lot going on, especially with this weather change. It changes a lot of people's plans and um, a lot of contingencies need to be made for the for the cold and um, to sit down and try to have some peace with you, some stillness, some some uh, just some just spending time in your word with brothers and sisters who are like minded. Um, it's just a it's a nice refreshing time for us, and we do that's what we pray that we be refreshed tonight. Times of refreshing come from being in your presence and. So that's why we're here. I pray that you bless the kids' ministry and the teachers that have taken the time to prepare a lesson for them. And um, I pray that their time would be rich and, and wonderful and meaningful and, and memorable, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is, has two missions in life, it seems. His first mission is to minister to the Gentiles. He wants to minister to the Jews, but they really don't want to listen to him. He's too Jewish for them. But the Gentiles had always been put out. They'd always been left out. Um, they've always been put in the outer courts, distant. And um, of course, that either built uh, an animosity against the Jews or it built a longing or a desire. So as Paul gets saved from being a Jew of all Jews, a part of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he had come to the full extent that the law could take a man. And he had come to a dead end. Um, a similar, well, many men, but one of note that have come to that same end is Martin Luther. Um, he was reading this book here, and uh, it reminded him, of course, of Habakkuk 2.4. But that's what changed Martin Luther's um, desire and, and understanding for God, um, that the just shall live by faith. Um, as Martin Luther was a part of the Catholic Church, a priest, a scholar, I mean, brilliant, brilliant man, always struggled uh, with his achievement-based faith. And I think that's the best way to describe it. I, we, we talk about works, you know, you'll hear that a lot in, in Christianity, works, faith, the scales, you know, good versus bad. I think achievement-based faith helps us understand that a little even more. Um, most of our lives, we know what that means, and, we, and, and that is how this world works. It's achievement-based. Um, you achieve an A or a C or a B grade. Uh, you achieve a, a, a job interview. You either achieve or you don't based on your performance. And so everything has to do with this in our, in our world. Um, and it's very easy then to carry that on through with spiritual things. Um, we understand the system. We know how it works. And that's why many people gravitate towards achievement-based faith or works-based faith. Well, Paul had come to the end of works-based faith or achievement-based faith, and it left him longing, empty inside. 
It didn't take him to God. It didn't take him to that changed heart. It, it didn't bring him peace at all. In fact, it only brought anxiety to him. Well, Paul coming from that and reading this, the just shall live by faith, Martin Luther, the same condition, the just shall live by faith, it was absolutely freeing for them. They had finally found in letting go, in understanding what God had provided for them, they could let go of the achievements, they could let go of the works, and they could rest finally. And what a glorious place that is. I don't use that word often, but it is. It's a glorious place to be when you can rest from your labors, rest from working, rest from your anxiety, rest from achievement-based relationship with God. You don't have to do that anymore. And so Paul, as he ministers to these churches in Galatia, um, that truth, the just shall live by faith, he hears as he left them, it seems too soon. He feels like in this chapter, he's going to talk about how much he's been praying for them and desires more for them. It's as if he left them a little anemic, a little light on uh, understanding, on doctrine. And so a group has come in and capitalized upon that lack. And they've taught them, that's great that you are living by faith, but then they brought in the achievement that needs to be there, the works that need to come alongside that. And Paul is forever in these first four chapters, first three, but tonight also, trying to move them back to that grace, to that rest that they first had, um, because he knows what can come of this. And that, that is his point. It, it isn't that he feels like he's losing the Galatians, like he's not, he's not concerned about losing their um, desire for him or their uh, acknowledgement of him and his accomplishments. Um, what he's concerned about is it's a, it's a, it's two completely different systems. He knows what his system, what grace, what God has provided is going to bring them peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, long suffering. It's going to bring them everything they've ever wanted and needed. And he knows because he's been down the road that they're being brought onto for the first time as Gentiles bringing brought on to this on-ramp of Judaism, which is a which is a achievement-based, he knows what that's going to bring them. Such heartache, such anxiety. It may seem exciting at first getting on this new road. I'm finally in the inner court, you know. I'm finally accepted by the guys with the big black robes, the long white beards that used to look at me funny. But now, now I'm somebody in their life, and that means something to them. They've achieved a relationship by following these guys and their teachings. And Paul's like, oh, I was that guy. Maybe I should wear my black robes. Maybe I should have my long white beard. Maybe I should walk around like the Pharisee I used to. And then maybe you'd be satisfied with what I taught you. But basically, because I came to you like you, you've rejected what I've taught. And you're going after the guys that look more official you know, and have a list so that's Paul's concern, and he is desperately not only trying to minister to the Gentiles, he's also trying to fight against the Judaism that they're being brought under. It's two things. It's one thing to get somebody saved, to preach the gospel to them. It's a whole other thing to continue in that liberty, to continue, to not move from that liberty, and we do. We do. We can. We can do that in raising our kids. We can do that with our marriages. We can do that with our friends, with our family. We can turn our relationships into achievement-based. It's a very dangerous thing. 
we want people to love us because they know how much we love them. That is everything. I want my kids to be obedient, not because they're afraid of the whip, but because I love them so much and they don't want to just please me. They just have a love back for me. That's how they show their love back to me. When we teach kids our scriptures, we want them to learn the scripture, not because they're going to be in trouble if they don't, or they're not going to get a reward if they don't. We want them to learn scripture because it's what made us who we are, and they want to be like that, and they want to have that relationship with God also, and so therefore they they do those things. It's not achievement-based. It's not merit-based. It's grace-based. So Paul's trying to bring them to that. And how do you do that? without a whip, you know? I, uh, I was trying to think of an example of this, and it's not a very good example, but I, um, I was even debating as to whether I should use it because it's kind of a long analogy, but here we go. Um, I'm, a, I'm a realtor. I think everybody knows that. And there are two types of houses that are for sale. There's realtor bait. There's those that are listed and those that are not listed. Those that are not listed are for sale by owner, which is fine. I'm all for doing whatever you can do for sale by owners, fine. Um, but there's some pitfalls that fall into that. And now with a for sale by owner, um, on average, you lose 17%. You save your 6% in commission, but you get 17% less for the house because none of the people that have buyers, the realtors, can bring them to your FISBO. You know? And so you lose all those buyers when you do that. You only have a smaller pool of buyers, and they're like-minded. They want the cheapest thing they can possibly do. They're trying to cut also, and so you get a lower price. And so you can try to explain that to a FISBO, but that's kind of what I get paid to do. That's where I get my income from. That's what you, I, I'm the expert. I know what I'm doing. I know the, the problems with not having title insurance, and you're going to buy that, and then you're going to try to sell it, but you're going to realize there was a lien against it that wasn't discovered, and now you can't sell it. And every, money, every drop of money you put into that to flip it is now gone because you've got to pay the you know, health people that have a lien against that, and you, know, you lose it all. And so there's a lot of things you'd like to take the time to explain or to go over with them, but you have a vested interest in it. And so they're not apt to believe you when you talk to them about these things because you just want my listing. Well, yeah, I do, but <laughs> I, I, that's not why I'm telling you this. You know, I'm telling you this because it's, you're not going to save the money you think you're going to save. Um, Paul has the same problem here. I love you. And I'm trying to explain to you where legalism is going to lead you. I'm trying to let you know that I've been down that road and I've fallen into all the traps and I know where that's going to go. But you think I have a vested interest, like I'm trying to lure you back to my side as opposed to their side. It's not a battle of size. I'm trying to explain to you. So I've got to let you go and I've got to let you discover it on your own. But by the time you discover it on your own, it's too late and you've lost everything. And it's a very difficult thing to to teach someone that, as you see their bright eyes, and this has happened to me several times, and it's happened to probably you guys as well, as you've ministered the love of Christ to somebody, they believe by faith, they love with all their heart. You can see the freedom in their face, the joy, they're shining, they're glowing, and legalism sets in six months, a year, five years later, and you can watch their countenance change and their lips purse, and you can see it all disappear. But they're as saved, they think, as they ever were, if not better. 
and they become hardened and you're the enemy and something's happened and you don't know how to explain to them. And so for Paul to take the time to write this letter is very big of him. Um, it's hard to explain to somebody who's going down that road of legalism that that's a dangerous road. It's a dead end. I've been down that. You're not going to turn them back from that road without them having to go through those steps and discover it on their own. It's very hard. And so Paul is desperately trying to tell them so that they don't feel the pain and go through the anguish he's gone through. That's where his heart is. So verse 1, Now I say that the heirs, that's where we left off last week, these kids of God's, their heirs, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave. Though he's a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." He's continuing on the thought from chapter 3 where the law, if, there was, if it's not a way to get to God, what's the point of having the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law? What purpose does it serve? Well, it's a steward, it's a guard, and we learn the two things that the law does for us. It does keep our sin a little bit in check. It's hard to do wrong things knowing that that's glaring you in the face, and so it's a little bit uh, of a deterrent. Um, but it's also to show the contrast Uh, When I do and live my life the way I used to live it without the law, I had nothing to compare my actions to. I seem to be pretty good because I'm comparing myself to the people on my right and left. God says, no, I want you to look up when you compare yourself. Now, here's the standard. That's what the law is for entrance into heaven, and it needs to be perfect. Well, now it's different. Now you can see every time how far you are from where God wants you to be or needs you to be for you to get to heaven. You realize, I've got a big problem. It's not whether I'm better than these guys. It's whether I've met this level of criteria. And so it's a schoolmaster. It's a guardian. It does two things for us. It's meant to keep us in check and to check, hey, you know what? You, you, you need a savior. You need someone to do something for you because you've not achieved you can't achieve. You've already got the F, you know. Um, you need something. And so this has been a schoolmaster. So he says, so he switches metaphors a little bit here and says, it's like you're a child who is the heir, but because you're a child, you're not treated like the adult that can handle it. So we put a schoolmaster over you to keep you in check until you're old enough and mature enough to take on um, the inheritance, basically. So that's what he's described here. You're as equal as all the slaves. Now, it's, a, it's not a perfect analogy, but he's doing the best he can. You're, you're, you're told what to do. You don't get to do what you want to do as a kid. You're, you're just constantly being bossed around, basically, is what it is. And, uh, and you watch all of our kids. You, every kid goes through that, right? Uh, when they're little, you give them a little small area that they can run around in. And as they mature, you give them a bigger sphere of, you know, run, a little more running room, basically. And by the time they're 14, 15, 16 years old, you can see they're ready to not be in that cage anymore, basically. And they recognize the cage for the first time. And they realize, I just want to go do whatever I want to do kind of thing. And that's when you have to really be careful and say, well, I'll go with walks. I'll go, I'll go to these places with you or I'll venture off in these places where I wouldn't let you go by yourself, but I'll go with you kind of thing. That's what is happening. Um, 
for 2,000 years, well, actually it's been 4,000 years, but until Christ is born, until this woman is born, the time and season that we're celebrating right now, uh, Christmas, until that season comes, until this child is born, you're kept under this. But now that he's born, everything's changed. When Jesus was born, all of that was fulfilled. All the law, everything. We've been brought to maturity. And what he's trying to tell the Galatians is, do you really want to be the kid who needs to be watched all the time, or do you want to be the mature adult who is given in charge, that you're set free, you have liberty now, and now you follow Christ? Or do you want to be put under the law? And he doesn't understand, why would you want to ground yourself? Why would you want to put yourself under house arrest? Why would you want to put yourself back into that prison? He uses many different terms to describe the same thing. You're being set free in Christ to walk with the Lord as closely as you want to, to be as obedient as you want to be, versus being told you must. God forever wants us to love him because he loved us. Not because you're in big trouble if you don't. That's the difference. When Jesus came, love came down. We sing songs like that. Grace was born. It was meant to show that Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus is with us, God with us. He shows up down here. And you want to talk about a jump from deity to manhood, you know, you're kidding me. And he came down to show us and he walked the walk that we should be able to walk. And he was sinless and faultless and blameless and loved us, cared for us, led us and taught us, did all the things he was supposed to do to show them. And now this is love. Every time the Bible talks about this love, it points to the cross. Who in the world would go to the cross for someone who's their enemy? For someone who didn't acknowledge him, for someone who didn't love him, who would do that? And the idea behind it, it was a big risk in the sense that, I mean, and it's the only way, it's not really a risk. I mean, it is, but it's the only way you can achieve what God wants to achieve in us. If I want people to truly love me because of their own free will, I've got to let them have their own free will and their own ability to trust me and to love me. And so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to step down and show them how much I love them. And if that's not enough to cause them to want to love me back, I have nothing else I can offer. It's the greatest thing you can offer somebody. If my kids don't want to obey me or follow me or walk in my ways, all I can do is say, it was grace-based. It is your choice. So when this time came, this Christmas time that we're celebrating right now, it's time, and he's saying, you had that. You had that grace, you had that love, you had that affection, you had that relationship with God. You looked at God with dewy-eyed love, you know? Oh, you're my father. And you reached out for him, not as a taskmaster or someone who's going to crush you with his heel, but as someone who has arms wide open for you and loves you like a father, and you cry out inside your heart, Oh, God, I love you like you love me, and this is wonderful. I've never felt this much love before in my entire life. I didn't do anything to deserve it, and yet you still set your love upon me. There's no achievement here that I needed to do. I didn't earn it. And it breaks your heart that you didn't earn this love that he's given you, and it causes you to just feel back to him, is the idea. It's very simple, very powerful. It's not tangible, though. It's not touchable. It's not, you can't make a pie chart. You can't graph it. It's beyond. And here come the Judaizers. We can graph that. We can put that in a pie chart. We can quantify these. 
actions. You can know how much you're loved and how much God loves you and how much you love him. We can measure this. We can get a scale. We can get this down. We can do achievements. We can get gold stars. We can get, we can do this. Paul's like, why do you want to go back to that? Verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Paul's trying to remind them of the obvious truth. You don't think it's tangible. The very fact that inside your heart, you're crying out, Oh, Father, I love you. That doesn't come from you. That comes from the Spirit of God in you. That's what a born-again believer does. A born-again believer is changed. And in their heart, they're like, God, I just love you. I worship you. You worship God by yourself. And no one's looking. You talk to God by yourself and no one hears. You read God's word, not because someone's going to check or know. You do it because you need wisdom and you know that's the only place to get it from. These things that you just do intuitively, that's the spirit of God in you. And Paul's trying to point that out. You have something so much more tangible than a gold star and a pie chart. You have the spirit of God crying out from in you. And that's never happened before until now, has it? You've never experienced that before until now. Here it is. In Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We discount that. It's a feeling. It's a, it's a warm fuzzy. It's a something inside. It's not touchable. It's not grabbable. And yet it's so real and it's so there. And it used to be plenty until someone told us it wasn't plenty or enough. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit inside of us just knows this is right. It's right. I don't know what to tell you, but I've never had this before. You're crying out to God the first time, Father, you're loved and you love. Verse 8, but... Then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Paul's very concerned. It isn't about... a. a a, a battle of ideas here. He's very concerned for their souls. He's concerned for their relationship, for their life. God came to give us life and that more abundantly, not more difficult, not more burdens, but to ease us of these things. It's interesting what he calls weak and beggarly elements. I think you need to take note of that. Days, months, seasons, years, that's all of them. That's not the Ten Commandments. That's all of that that's written in the law. When you begin to have to celebrate the holidays, the seasons, the days even, seventh day, or the fifth week of Adar or whatever it is, you know, whatever, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of whatever, that's a very dangerous thing. Those are weak and beggarly compared to what you have. Those were all meant to point you to somebody. The the Sabbath day rest is meant to point you to a time when you would rest from your labors in Christ. I'm no longer working. 
I'm resting. It's all completed. There's nothing else to do. I'm done. And you rest in Christ. Christ is our Sabbath. When they talk about the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, you know, that's only to remind you of the time when God led you out of, the, out of Egypt, when he brought you out of the world and you were wandering around the wilderness and he provided for you and cared for you and loved on you, provided a way and opened up the Red Sea and gave you quail and manna and, and, and a fire and smoke by day and, and wiped out all the Egyptians who were after you. Is it meant to remind you of that, celebrating those things? But that's Christ. He's the one that saved us from the world. When we were in the world and crying out to God, help, 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 deliver us from these bonds. It's feel like, I feel like a slave day in and day out. It's the same thing over and over again. I wake up on Monday. I can't wait for Friday. And I enjoy maybe some Saturday, but Sunday night comes and I know that Monday's coming and it's just this rut and this cycle. And finally, help me, God. That's what Jesus does. Every day is ministry. Every day is an opportunity to live for Christ and to look for him and to see him. And it's an adventure. You have no idea what you're going to do. Before, I was just going to show up to work and get my job done and go home. Now, I don't even know. What are they going to say to me? Maybe Bob's going to ask me about God today. And I better be ready to give him a reason for have a whole new mission now. It's not to run the machine. It's to be ears wide open and ear, you know, antenna up spiritually, ready for what God wants to do in your life. And there it is. And there's the opportunity. And maybe there's one. Maybe there's none. Maybe there's a hundred opportunities that day. He changes us. It's weak and beggarly to think that you can go back to those and observe those and think that you have a closer relationship with God than you do with Jesus. You can't. You can't get any better than being an heir to be a son of God or a daughter of God. You can't get any closer to God than that. And you're an heir or a son of God only because God said so, because he adopted you into his family. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. And it's not merit-based. There's nothing wrong with being obedient to your father. When he tells you to do something, you do it. But it needs to be not because you want to make sure you're an heir. It has to be because you're an heir. I want my kids to want to help. I don't even have to ask them anymore. Every kid's different. Every personality is a little different. Some need a little bit of some encouragement. But for the most part, if they see me doing something heavy or hard or whatever, it doesn't matter how old they are or who they are. Do you need any help with that, Dad? They don't look the other way or go hide in a bathroom or go do something that, you know, maybe out of sight, out of mind kind of kid. They They don't vacate. They, oh, you looks like you need some help. I mean, who wants to milk a cow? That's what I do that in the morning, milk a cow. And Bo wakes up, he's 11. Hey, you need help milking cows today? I said, no, bud, go back to bed. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, he takes me up on going back to bed, but what 11-year-old says, can I come help you milk cows in the freezing cold in the barn or stay in bed and pretend and hope dad doesn't knock on my door? You know, you know he gets up. You need help? No, I'll go back to bed. Got it. But he did ask. That's because I love him and he loves me, you know, and, and if I expect that from my earthly son and an earthly dad situation, how much more our father in heaven? He's way better than I am, obviously. Dad, what can I do for you today? Do you need any help? It's pretty cold out. Are you sure you want to go out? I'll go anywhere. Not because I want to earn your love or because I want to keep my salvation, but because, I mean, your dad... 
If you've got something to do, I want to do it. You know, so much better. And see, Paul saw that in all of these people, in these Galatians. But somewhere along the line, while he was gone, they either forgot or what happened, or someone made this merit-based system look better than it really is. I don't know how you sell something like that, but they knew how to sell it. (laughs) And they bought. Verse 12, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. I'm not going to stop every verse, but that's very important. Paul's saying to the Gentiles, I want you to become like me, but not because I'm a Jew or was a Jew. It's because I became like you to get saved. So I want you to come full circle from following me and follow me right back into where you are right now, grace and mercy as a Gentile saved. I don't want you to become a Jew first. I don't want you to have to figure out what I had to figure out. Skip all that. Learn from me. Just become like me right now, and I'm like you, is the idea. What's he referring to? Well, it's in Acts chapter 15, verses 10 through 12. This is what I mean by Paul's second battle. Not only to get people saved, but he had to visit Jerusalem to explain to the Jerusalem disciples, hey, They don't need to do all these things. And he spent a whole chapter, chapter 15, trying to explain to the Jewish council, look, the Gentiles are getting saved. We don't need to put any more burdens on them than what's already there. We don't need to put that law on them. Trying to stop it before it starts. So in verse 10 of chapter 15, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? None of us could carry this yoke. That's why we came to Christ. Why are you, make, why are you yoke salesmen? What a ridiculous thing for you to be spending your time doing. You got freed from the yoke. Jesus, remove the yoke. Take my burden. Remove the worldly yoke. It's easy. It's light. And you're out there selling the yokes. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, as Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as they, as Gentiles. And that was a big bomb to drop right there in Jerusalem. Because they're still wearing the hats. they still got the black coats. They've got Jesus, but they're still kind of saying, yes, but we go to synagogue on Saturdays. And they're doing all their things they're supposed to do. He says, you don't understand. we got to be saved like they do. we got to change. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. They needed that. How do I know what you're saying is true? Because after we talked about all these things, God healed people and was doing amazing things, miracles and signs and wonders. Apparently your, your message has God's stamp of approval on it. It does. And they know that. I don't know where they forgot, but they got away from it. 1 Corinthians, he says it twice, chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me, Paul says. It's a bold thing to say. Later on in that same book, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ, is what he's getting at. Look, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. It's a safe bet. I want everybody in this room to be able to say that. We all need to be able to say that to anybody around us. I want you to follow me like I follow Christ. So important. Verse 12 again, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. It's not about my personality or your lack of affection for me. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. 
And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. You guys were a breath of fresh air to me. Everybody else looked at my physical problem, which we're not sure what that is. We speculate. But everybody else was looking at me going, oh, Paul, it's hard to look at. He says, not you guys. You treat me like I was an actual messenger from God. You treated me like I was Christ Jesus himself. I mean, you treated me like royalty. It was amazing. You guys are great people is what he's saying. I love you people. You're one of the greatest things. I was The only reason I was there, he says, you know that because of the physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you. For some reason, this physical infirmity caused him to stop in this place and preach the gospel. And he says, that's why I was there. And you guys received everything. You received my ugliness, whatever this physical you know, problem was. But you also received the message. This is a sweet time for him. It's not about you hurting my feelings. You've already blessed me. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I think that's what bothered him the most. Now we speculate because he says you'd pluck out your own eyes that Paul had an eye problem. Other parts of his letters he wrote, you see which such big handwriting, my own name or whatever he writes at the end of the letters to show that although I can't see very well, I made sure that I signed it Paul, you know, kind of thing because my eyes are so weepy, who knows. But they were willing to give up their own eyes for his eyes is the indication, so it's probably what his problem was. His heartache, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Hmm. The yoke salesmen, the circumcised salesmen, which we'll read about next week when we get there, they were telling the people that Paul had given them an incomplete gospel. It's the only way you can sell yokes is to tell them that it's incomplete. Yeah, you got Jesus, but you still need the yoke. And of course, they didn't call it that. You need the law. You need to get circumcised. You need to go through. You need to keep the days, the feasts, the festival. We'll teach you all that, or we'll at least give you a book to cover it all, and, and you need to do all that. No, 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 no. Paul gave them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And for some reason, he's now become an enemy. And that's a hard thing when you tell the truth to people um, and they don't appreciate it. You do your best to do it in love. You can make it palatable (laughs) and you can make it offensive. You know, there's a way to tell the truth, a proper way. Um, to, to speak the truth in love is key. They need to know where your heart is on the matter. And Paul's heart was for them, so much so. So he tries to explain. Now, they, they made you think I am the enemy. Verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. That was their technique, I guess. That was their sales pitch. Well, you do want to be a good Christian, or I don't know how they worded it, like us, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, you were always the religious leaders, right? Always looked up to you guys. We always knew because you told us every Saturday whether we were right or wrong. Got it? And now you've discovered this Jesus, and so we want to follow you. It's natural, you know? They said, good, well, I'm glad you appreciate us and you still respect us. Well, now we're telling you Jesus is great and we love Jesus, but we got to do these other things also. Mm, if you want to be like us, that is. Well, yeah. Otherwise, don't come to the temple. You know, really. 
So they excluded, they made them jealous so that they'd be zealous for them. Um, so manipulation is never how you want to grow. It's never how you want your kids to learn. Um, it's never how you want your marriage to be stronger or try to get them stronger or try to make it stronger. It's never how you want your church to grow it's through manipulation. Um, it's a very dangerous road to go down. It's exactly what they would do here. Um, this manipulation of their hearts and their desire to be accepted by the religious leaders. Um, well, it's cultish is what it is. It really is. One of the tactics of cults is uh, what they call love bombs. And uh, what that is, is you're welcomed and loved. And they find the, the outsider, the excluded, the, the person who's never felt a part of the group or whatever. And they just, oh, you're, and they love and they love and they love and they love. And they show them how much attention they're getting. It doesn't last. And they do that until they're in. And then when they're in, they're a drone. And they're told to do this, that, or the other thing. And they do these. It's, it's not genuine. It's not from the heart. Um, I mean, I love it when people greet one another and they find a newcomer and they, hey, how are you? You know, it's good to talk. It needs to be natural, though. You know, uh, we don't want to set up love bombs at the door. You just hope that happens and naturally occurs, you know. Um, the manipulation is a, is a horrible thing because when they discover that they've been manipulated, it's, it's worse. Uh, they become jaded um, towards um, whatever. Uh, whatever you tried to bring them into. So verse 19, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Not sure where you stand. I don't know how you can still be saved and talk like what you, or say what you say and do what you do. Um, but I still consider you my children. I still love you. I just want to talk to you and figure out where, what is it that brought you to this place of legalism. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, and I was going to use another analogy here. You who desire to be under the law, um, do you not hear the law? I mean, you really pay attention to what the law says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other by the free woman. But he was of the bondwoman, he who was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, old covenant and new covenant. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of, of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, Paul got deep there, didn't he? I mean, if you'd never read the Bible before, you're like, what are you talking about, two covenants? What are you talking about? Who's Hagar? Like a pair of pants, I thought, you know. Who is this? Well, it's a, it's a long story, but we'll try to make a short story out of it. Abraham was old. His wife was old. They were not having any kids. It was done for. And God says, you're going to have a baby. No, we're not. You know, yeah, you're going to have a baby. And Abraham laughed, but he was excited. Sarah laughed and says, I don't think so. She didn't believe, you know, 
I know you're going to have one anyway. Well, a long time passes, longer than they thought necessary for the promise to come, for this child to come. And Sarah gets a little anxious and says, you know, I've got my handmaiden, a slave, a servant girl named Hagar. Maybe, it, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but she offers Hagar to her husband and says, why don't you have a baby by her and I'll call it mine and we'll call it good and that'll be. And in the flesh, in their own conniving and manipulation, they're going to make the promise of God happen through this Hagar woman. And Abraham doesn't put much of a fight up, I guess. I don't know. He says, well, sure. You know. Well, they have this boy named Ishmael. And that's great. Sweet little kid, probably. I mean... Didn't turn out that way, but, you know, not his fault. Well, he gets born, and then all of a sudden, Sarah gets pregnant. He's 13 years old, and it's time for the boy to be weaned, and this new boy is named Isaac. That's the promise. Sarah actually has the baby, but it's 20 years later that Isaac gets born. So now you got this Ishmael's about 13 years old, and you got this new Isaac. Ishmael's the the son of the slave, basically, the fleshy fulfillment of God's promise, which is no fulfillment of God's promise. He represents the law, and so does Hagar. It's of no value, and it's not that he's not going to be the heir. This was the promise of God. This is what we were waiting on. This is not. And so here's Isaac, and this boy begins to torment Isaac during his little weaning party that he has. I don't know how old he was, three, maybe four or five years old when he gets weaned. And he's just tormenting him, and he says, get out. Sarah gets mad that Hagar's son, Ishmael, is making fun of her little boy, the promised boy, and she says, get him, Ishmael, and Hagar out and cast her out. Well, Paul uses this as an analogy for what it's like to have the old covenant, the new covenant, old covenant, new covenant. And so he's trying to explain to them, no, this is, this is a type. He says, now we brethren, verse 28, as Isaac, the little kid, the promised kid, was our children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, Ishmael persecuted Isaac, even so it is now. That's what's happening. Now, the analogy is hard because there's real people involved here. You feel for Hagar, you feel for Ishmael, but that's not the point of the story. It's not for us to feel bad for the old covenant. Paul's trying to say, look, as the old covenant was cast out, as it was made to leave because the promise was here and it's Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah, and this is the family God always intended for us to have. And somewhere along the line, this came into being only because we needed a fleshy fulfillment. He said, now that gets cast out. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. We will not share the inheritance. Paul's trying to make a point. Look, do you want to be Isaac or do you want to be Ishmael? You guys were Ishmael, but and the, this is where analogy falls apart, you know, in Paul's story. But now, you're Isaac now. Why would you as Isaac want to become a slave kid? Why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to stay the promise of the, the heir apparent, the, the wonderful, the, the, the perfect? Why do you want to go back to that? Cast it out. This relationship with you have with Abraham now is so much better. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. 
I don't know if they got all that or not. I don't know if we got all that tonight or not. I mean, it's something you can chew on for a long time, but you can get Paul's point. He's trying to make it very real and, and very, it's very black and white. I mean, it is. There is no, well, I think we'll have a little Ishmael and a little Isaac and we'll have a little bit of both. No, no, no. You're either Isaac or you're not. And that translates into, I'm either born again believer or I'm not. See, Judaism with, was, was, was merit-based. Hinduism is merit-based. Uh, Islam is merit-based. Every religion in the world is merit-based. Every single religion in the world is merit-based. It's accomplishment-based, except for Christianity. And that's not meant to belittle. It's meant to say that it's so much better in the sense that Christ came to give all mankind. Every one of these groups can leave this merit-based system and become a child of promise. It isn't meant to slam Ishmael. I think that's where we get lost in translation here sometimes. It's not meant to. No, you can be, anybody can be Isaac if they choose that relationship with God. But so many prefer the achievement-based relationship with God over it that they're willing to forsake the Isaac relationship, this beautiful, that's just dad to me. That's just mom to me. That's just, we're just a family it has nothing to do with whether I've earned it or not. I'm just his kid. I'm either a really good obedient kid or I'm a really naughty kid, but I'm still his kid. Either way. And Paul's saying, why would you ever want to leave that? Why would you ever want to go away from that? And that's the point of chapter 4. On chapter 5, next week we'll get into, he begins to talk about the whole point of this, is circumcision. They thought that was the thing. And uh, he's not happy with it. So, um, yeah, we'll leave off there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Um, As born-again believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have trusted in you for their salvation, we're children of promise. We can't achieve a better relationship with you. We can't merit more love from you. We have all of your love. And because we have all that and we... Rest in that, Lord. Now we begin to look to you, not because we must obey, but we want to. We want to look like your kids. I want to look like my dad. I want to act like my dad. I want to have the same character as my dad. I want to be as loving as my dad, as gracious as my dad, as merciful as my dad. I want all those things because I've experienced so much from you. I pray that for every person in this room we'd experience even more and more grace, mercy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control. We'd experience everything from you, and we'd be able to then be like you. We'd begin to reflect you to this world. They might experience you through us at times, and we could bring them to you. For those in the room that have never made that commitment to you, they've never just accepted your forgiveness. They've never accepted your love. They've wondered about it. They thought about it. Maybe they didn't know how. Tonight, they feel it in their heart. This is true. I bear, I bear witness with it. I can feel it. I know it in my heart. This is right. And uh, they want to pray right now. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. We're celebrating your birth this time of year, and you're going to grow up 
They're going to take the sin of the world upon your shoulders. You're going to nail it all to the cross. And you're going to declare us all forgiven. We thank you for that tonight. We receive your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving us. Lord, we turn from our sins. We turn from them. We put them in the rearview mirror and we're walking towards you now and away from sin in our lives. We want to be more like you. We want to spend more time with you. We, want to, we just want to spend time in your love, to learn of you, to know about you. To, this is a whole new thing for us. We want all that you have for us. Fill us with your spirit that within inside of us would cry out to you, Abba, Father. We'd have that, that assurance of salvation, that seal, that knowing. And I pray that this would be maybe the first Christmas that we've ever celebrated where we truly worship you and thank you for your birth. Thank you for coming and doing what only you could do. Doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. Dying on the cross for our sins and taking away all of our punishment. Thank you for that. We're excited that we have a place with you, that you're gone to make a place for us and that you're going to come back for us and take us to that place that we get to go to heaven. You're going to make a place for us, and we look forward to that. Now, while we live here on earth, though, we want to live for you. We want to do what you want us to do. We want to live for you. We'll, we'll still do the things we're supposed to do. We'll go to work. We'll love. We'll, we'll pay our bills and do everything else that's kind of obligatory down here. But we're going to do it with your heart. We're going to be honest. We're going to work hard. We're going to be the best workers our employers have ever seen. We're going to be the best employers that our workers have ever seen. We're going to live and be like you. And I pray that's a blessing in this world. Help us to be light and salt wherever we go to bring beauty and love. Lord, bless these folks as they go tonight. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.